Good evening and welcome to the Recollective Podcast. My name's Charlie Beale and in the studio this evening I'm joined by my regular chum, Mr Thomas Goodfellow, and I'm very delighted to say to the original members of The Cling, Mike Toller and James Bell. Hello. Good evening. Season's greetings, everybody. Yeah. Nice to be here. Nice to be back. We're recording this on the 27th of December in multiple states of lockdown, uh, multiple states of sobriety. And uh, yes, it's the supergroup that once first performed at Pembroke College on the 28th of, no- 20th of November 1998. Oh my God. For the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Mick, you wanted at one point to talk about uh, the origins of the Kling. Uh, what was it like when you first joined the band? Did you did you have a nice time with us? Yeah. Well, I, here's the funny thing. I don't think I can remember much about exactly how we started being a band. Um, maybe that says a lot about what the Kling was all about. Ultimately, like it was just a big, messy, like happy summer, I think. And then out of that came uh, an intention to play a gig that autumn <laughs> after after summer break who can remember what was what was on the set list on that first gig at pembroke college mm-hmm. excuse some... me did we yes. do our cover of street spirit our famous celebrated <laughs> radiohead cover no there was some bowie in there i'm sure oh yeah ziggy stardust yeah give me shelter and aretha I don't oh, think we'd played Aretha yet. Oh, Brown Sugar, Brown Sugar. Yeah. I don't think we'd played oh, no, Brown Sugar at that Before point. we had the saxophone involved. Yeah, mm. Yeah. so I think we came on to what we called... Uh, a j- it was a jam based on Fleetwood Mac's The yeah. Chain. Um, and we all came on separately. So was it you started with a dum, 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 dum. And then, and then we started- all came onto stage. Yeah, you picked it up and you could, yeah, I, I, there was a, I mean, a delightful experience for all watching, I'm sure. So that's the second gig, right? I'm holding up a picture now, which is hanging on my wall above. And that I think is, Mike, I think that is you walking onto stage there. That's the yeah. moment of you walking on, holding your Seattle Coffee Company cup or something. Yeah. You've probably got beer in it. Beer in it. Um, and that was, we did the same thing. We walked on. That's the 4th of December. So those were pictures from Pembroke. Pictures from the first gig. You're right, of course. They were pictures. Oh. So it would have been the very first gig. Yeah. Nice. This is Amazing. not good audio, Tom. Um, <laughs> you started it. <laughs> okay. For those of you who want to talk to see the picture that Tom is holding aloft, the flyer for the fourth of December gig, our second gig is the Kling. I'll put it on the official Recollective Podcast Instagram, which I keep very up to date. Um, uh, today we're going to be talking about the genealogy of the song. Um, what we mean by that is songs go through life cycles. They often start as one idea and become a different idea. And there's, there's, you know, a song is only ever a kind of uh, a photograph, a moment in time captured. And and if you were to re-record it on another day, another week, another year, it would sound different. Um, so we're taking a couple of our songs that have different versions and and. We're going to play through the different versions of them and, and discuss why we recorded it in certain ways. Um, but to kind of whet our appetite for that process, Tom, you have prepared um, what we're not calling an anecdote. Um, but you have some examples from a rather well-known band about uh, songs that have a, have a certain life 
span or genealogy. Yeah. So when we first talked about doing this episode, um, I immediately thought of all these demos and bootleg recordings that I used to get of bands that I liked from often from Camden Town, from the um, those Camden Town sound for two pound guys who would like sell you tapes for two quid, and you'd get like all these obscure recordings of bands bands you liked, including the Beatles. So I thought, well, let's go back. Let's let's begin at the beginning here and. Um, the idea of this episode is, yeah, is to trace how songs change over time, how one song can morph into another song, and how the end product that you normally hear when you listen to a, a single by a band that gets released or an album track, you know, it normally has a, a prehistory and quite often will have been totally different song, different lyrics, maybe a different middle eight, maybe a totally different speed. Um, so you very rarely uh, get to hear those earlier lives unless you're kind of going out there trying to find the bootleg recordings. Anyway, so. For me, there are some interesting examples in the Beatles. The first one we're going to listen to is a song that doesn't change that much as a song, uh, and it has several recorded, officially released versions, so there are no secrets here. But um, the change in tempo and the change in arrangement is very substantial between the two versions. Um, and it, just, the song has a very different effect as a result of that, so I think it's an interesting one to listen to. That song is Revolution. On the White Album, it's called Revolution One. There was also a song on what I'm called Revolution 9, but that has nothing to do with this. This same song, Revolution 1, gets released as a single separately from the White Album in a very, very different version. Um, but let's hear, let's hear the one from the White Album first. And I think, you know, you can't imagine this being a single at all. It's much too slow. Uh, it's got a kind of dirgy quality to it. There are good things about it, but let's have a listen and then we'll, and then we'll put the later version on. I think... Revolution one. Gosh, um, that is. Uh, I mean, sonically quite interesting, but so slow. I know. And now it just has to listen for a moment to this horns. This horns on the same note, just droning through this verse. Okay. Um, 
So they recorded that song like loads of takes of it. And then I think Revolution 9, which is just this weird soundscape on the White Album, which I'm sure many of you who know, although a few people have probably listened to all nine minutes of it, was also part of jamming that track. And they just cut a bit off. Uh, there was just random jam and layered over it and stuff. But anyway, I think they obviously liked the song, but they were like, we can't release this as a single because it's really, really slow. And for some reason, they wanted it as one of their double A sides. I think it was a double A side with... I can't remember, can anyone know it? Anyway, it was double A side in 1968 with, um, oh, hey, Jude. But anyway, they thought we've got to re-record this and make it faster and make it pacier. So they did. And so the other version, uh, I think recorded quite soon afterwards, it's all 1968. Um, yeah, was, was recorded to be a single. So it's also the, recorded in the same year? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think just shortly okay. afterwards. <laughs> Evolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Don't you know it's gonna be all right? All right. So anyway, um, it sounds totally, it's interesting hearing it over the Zoom because it also sounds completely different sonically. It sounds much less stereo and it's like, there's less going on, but it's much poppier. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm hearing it, all the parts are panned, which is quite normal for the Beatles, isn't it? Um, where they, they pan stuff left and right. Yeah, yeah quite extremely. Uh, it sounds, yeah, it's, uh, I think I think we get a different version of it as we're hearing it over the internet. But the, I mean, the other thing that's interesting about it, apart from just the, I mean, it's quite stonesy as well. They're obviously trying to kind of create a certain kind of sound that wasn't, it was very different from the experimental sound scapes of the White Album, which it was on. There's also a change to the lyrics. So there's this line where he goes, was it you talk about destruction or something, but don't you know you can count me out? And on the original version, he goes, in. He goes, you can count me out, in. Um, and then he cut that out of the single because he thought it was too controversial. Because, you know. It's, um, there's a uh, song yeah. uh, on the the Love album, uh, Forever Changes, that does that as well. Uh, I forget which one it is, but it's uh, all, the, all the lines in the verse end with uh, the singer saying something like out and then the, uh, the the backing singers say all different other things like in or above or over uh, yeah it's, it's, it's the song. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean maybe this is a conversation for another time but it's like John Lennon's attitude towards like political songs um, it's quite interesting I think quite because actually he was quite timid in a lot of this stuff but then it was a different time it's hard to to judge really and then in his solo career obviously he was much more explicit about political stuff but anyway the reason i mainly wanted to play that was because just <laughs> the second version is so much faster and when we get into listening to one of our songs we will hear some substantial changes in tempo <laughs> um the other beatles example that i wanted to talk about in a sense is more interesting because it's an example of a song 
So it was demoed at the very end of the Beatles, so probably in 1970, around the time of Let It Be or, or, or Abbey Road, 69, 70. Um, and it's a Lennon song, but then they were all writing separately by that time anyway. And this song was never made a Beatles song. I think it only exists as this one demo, but then became a very famous John Lennon song with completely different lyrics, completely different style and arrangement, but exactly the same melody and, um, you know, arrangement in the sense of the same verse, chorus, bridge, um, melody. On the road to Rishikesh I was dreaming more or less And the dream I had was true Yes, the dream I had was true I'm just a child of nature I don't need much to set me free I'm just a child of nature I'm one of nature's children this reminds me of Govinda's, the place near, uh, just off Oxford Street, where all the Hare Krishnas would uh, gather and Carl Hill would go there for lunch because he could get a nice feed for about a quid. Um, <laughs> Those guys, yeah, they used to come down to LSE and try and like convert students with free food. Um, so yes, on the road to Rishikesh, um, and this is called Child of Nature. What does it become, Tom? What does it become? Well, before we talk about what it becomes, I think what's interesting to note about this is just how kind of lame it is, like, in a way. Like, <laughs> really, obviously, it's like it's like an overhang of their whole thing of going to India and Rishikesh, but um, but frankly, they'd already sung about that quite a lot. Uh, and, then, and then he's just sort of saying, the rest of the words are really fairly uninspired. And, you know, he, the main hook of the line of the, of the song is like, I'm just a child of nature. And then he gets this bit that goes, I'm one of nature's children. And it just ends. Yeah, which is and what he does is he takes that same I'm one melody. of nature's childs. Yeah. <laughs> then it would, then that, it would stand better. That, that little awkward sounding line, I'm one of nature's children, then becomes like the most important line, like the main hook of the actual Lennon song, which is quite interesting. So do you want to just put it on? Or Jim, do you want to reveal what it is? <laughs> Yeah, you got it right the next time, didn't he? It's Jealous Guy, which is a much darker lyric and really much better song.
I'm just a child of nature. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really interesting um, you kind of singing that over the top because I guess uh, it starts to beg the question, when does a version of a song become a different song? Yeah. And, yeah, that, that's an interesting case of it really is a different song because I mean the lyric I mean it's so different in uh, you know f- but it's, it's not well, it's not exactly that because it's the, the tune is so exactly the same as is the yeah. tempo it's just the lyrics that's, that's changed and obviously the, the instrumentation but um, it's, it's very musically similar yeah yeah that's but what's what I meant the lyrics are so contrasting you know from this like I wonder how he made that leap because it's almost completely oppositional he's sort of Maybe he had some kind of uh, mystical side to him, but he's also unflinchingly self-aware, isn't it? Uh, to change it completely and talk about the, the darker side of himself. Okay, here's my um, hot take on, on interpretation of this, is that actually the Child of Nature song was recorded around the time of the White Album. I was wrong. I mean, originally demoed. And there's a song on the White Album called Mother Nature's Son by Paul McCartney. And the, I think they were both playing around with this, oh, we're children of nature, and they've been hanging out in Rishikesh. And um, John's doesn't go on the White Album for whatever reason. And I don't know, I've listened to a few bits of interview with John and Paul recently. The, the extent of jealousy, the extent to which um, John felt inadequate compared to Paul a lot of the time, partly because all the girls loved Paul in the early days. Maybe that's <laughs> what... Cause he, he ends up not including it on the White Album, possibly because he can't have two songs about being a child of nature. I thought this was an apology to Yoko. Yeah, but my that, subtext. That... Oh, OK. <laughs> I think it is an apology to Yoko. But maybe there's something of the... Uh, maybe there's something about Paul in there as well. There you are. one true love. <laughs> anyway, but that is... Yeah, so you can have a totally different song. So he was committed to that melody and that arrangement of a verse and a chorus, but mm. obviously didn't mean anything intrinsically. So you've dropped two really cool breadcrumbs here. One is the uh, the fact that we're going to have a notable change in tempo uh, in, in one of the songs we're talking about. The other one is um, the child of nature... Is on the Isha demo, which the Beatles yeah. recorded. Isha is round the corner from where I live, and it is not a very rock and roll town. Um, it's for quite well-heeled uh, Surrey stockbrokers. So I imagine that probably contributed to why uh, Child of Nature is a bit lame. And my <laughs> theory is they they had a good tune, but Isha made it shit, and so it took him to. Uh, to New York City, where it unlocked the true meaning of the song. <laughs> it's brilliant. We're coming out with a whole new world of interpretation here of late Beatles. Um, Sorry, Jim, you were saying? Uh, no, I've forgotten. Something was interesting. I would know that it sound, the arrangement was more more like the Beatles' White Album than the one that was uh, proposed for the Beatles' White, White Album. He's, he's got the kind of damped snare on there and the, the nice solid bass lines and sort of much more proficient instrumentation it sounds a lot more like a Beatles song mm. the, the so we were in Sydney Sussex College we were playing as four of us Penners joined the band we went on for about another year and a half playing um, and uh, gigs and, and doing little four track recordings in Cambridge and then we moved down to London and we wanted to be a bit more ambitious um, and this was around what 2000 2001 um, and so we were writing our own songs, uh, but also, Tom, you'd always, since I met you, been writing songs um, yourself. And one of the ones 
that we came across um, at that time and that you played us was a song called The Fever. Um, so let's stick on The Fever. Can we just not play very much of this? <laughs> Well, I think it's interesting. Don't get, yeah, I, don't get, uh, don't no, get no, coy. Stick with it. There's a lot to say about this. Bedroom, we haven't really gone on this podcast just into like really early bedroom demos. Like this is. Faces come out of the furniture when you turn around. Features strange but familiar. Surely it will be here all day. Okay, well, I don't know if you want to hear this. Is there a middle bit that's different or interesting? A middle bit, maybe? I don't know. Let's go back to the chorus. What? No, no. Sorry, we'll go back in. But I can I can remember your bedroom where there was a like quite a rubbish drum kit, which is was what we're hearing now. But this is you playing all the parts and recording it on your Tascam. Yeah. Um, but as we start unpacking the rest of the versions of this, or what this song became, you'll, you'll see a lot of the parts are still there. Yeah. Doesn't it? That's it, yeah. We've got 12 seconds of outro. What I found so interesting about listening to this yesterday, because I had a little listen. Um, if I've if I've heard I must have heard this before, this version, because you know, we we obviously worked it into Ugly Girl. Um, so at some point this must have been played in the rehearsal studio, and then we kind of started working on it together. But um what I loved about this was um sort of immediately hearing which parts of this were kind of made it through to Ugly Girl. I guess in particular in the choruses, you can hear that, particularly the, like the second part of the chorus, I think. And there's a few other bits maybe discuss about what 
kind of we carried over and what we didn't. But um, something else that I I kind of um, noticed yesterday when I was listening to it was talking of genealogy. Like it seemed to me that this song was related to a couple of other um, songs that we may have heard along the way. I don't know if this is too kind of tangential now, but I'll just throw it in there. Like there's a bit in that in the, um, the verse that really reminds me of Collaborator Three. Just something about it. I'd be interested to hear from you. I think Collaborator Three came later but what i don't know maybe it was part of something you were kind of doing at the same time there's something in there there's a couple of um there's a see another person the uninvited neighbor that just the the rhythm of that those lyrics just reminds me of collaborator three and another thing i just throw in there where it's there's something of that in collaborator three somewhere as well yeah it's just the rhythm of the lyric and and maybe it's just something that kind of is, is, is the way that you do things, Tom, or, or whether there was some, I don't know, you can tell us about it in terms of yeah. them being kind of related. I, they're not, not consciously related. I mean, it might just be, you know, you, you end up coming back to similar little melodic hooks maybe. Yeah. Um, but uh, collaboratively came a bit later. But yeah, I mean, what's amazing to me about that song is I really can't tell you very much about it. Like, I have no idea what it's really about. The only, the only thing, thing I know is there was a guy who was a lecturer, university lecturer, when I was doing my master's around the time, who I think I think I literally had a dream in it, uh, he, which, with him in it. And so I'm referring to this man who, who was like really idolised by loads of students, but he was kind of dark and a bit weird. And he, he I think, is the person in the dream, but I, can't, I don't know anything else about what the song's about. Anyway, but... <laughs> so the song, the reason we're playing it is because uh, very shortly after he recorded this, we... we kind of ripped it apart and uh, bastardized it and changed it and it became the demo which I'm about to play of the song that Mick refers to Ugly Girl and um, this was this could have been our Mr. Bright side because we we went um, and simultaneously we were working at um, well Tom and I were working at ICM um, where we met a guy called Conor McCacken. Conor McCacken knew the Divine Comedy, uh, and the Divine Comedy had a bassist called Brian Mills, and Brian Mills was trying to produce stuff from his own home recording studio, and he put us t- together, and we went and recorded what we'd been kind of messing around with, um, taking the fever and turning it into this song, Ugly Girl, which... Can I just we say... Play- yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a pleasant surprise when you played the song uh, that you just did because when uh, I'd seen uh, Mike type in the fever into the chat, I was thinking it was going to be uh, on the flavor and I'm here to play. No particular role in, in, in writing that number, delightful though it is. But no, I just want to say as well before we play, I remember, I don't know if you were there, Mike, you might, we might all have been there, definitely Jim and Charlie or, or definitely Jim. I mean, maybe it was just the two of us. We were in my bedroom in my parents' house in Egbert Street and we sat down and I think we were like, well, there's something in this song, but it's not, it's not, you know, uh-huh. it's not, it's not a hit and it's not a cling song and it needs something else. And we sat down and, and I remember when we came up with the very different rhythm to the verses. So rather mm. than that, rather than the staccato, mm. Uh, mm. And, we, and we worked through a bridge and all of that. Do you remember that? Yeah, but I also, I also I remember a couple of things about this one. Uh, one was, um, well, trying to make a, a counterpoint bass line that would play the, play the offbeats. Um, but the more I listen to the fever, I, it's very similar to the counterpoint guitar part that you've got doing something along those lines. So I wasn't far from the 
far from the original, really. Yeah, and I was going to say as well, like if if the if the verses had a different rhythm as they were played on the drums, like that's in the guitar already. I think what's going on there. I've I've a feeling that Jim and I reworked it a bit musically because I can literally mm. picture us in in a particular part of my bedroom next to the piano, and I think maybe then we took it instrumentally and we played it like that, and then Charlie came up with just a new vocal line and the new bits right. of the melody and stuff. Well, I'll t- I'll talk about the kind of the, the lyrical changes I made and which uh, which lines I liked and, and wanted to keep after we've heard this. This is the Brian Mills version of Ugly Girl.
So do you think we all kept uh, respectfully quiet because uh, we're we're kind of secretly acknowledging that that's the seminal version of this song? That's the one. That I was going to say. I was going to actually say exactly the same thing. That is the version of I Go, even though we've got two more subsequent it's, ones that yeah. used to play. All the essential things, uh, all the essential <laughs> motifs are there, really, aren't they? And uh, it's got the spirit. I don't think the joy of repetition was really <clears throat> in us. I think things had a time, and that was fairly early on in their genesis, and then. <clears throat> repeating them after that maybe doesn't catch I mean, the, the zeitgeist as much. Shame we didn't realise at the time, perhaps, as we, we did not release it, as we get a big, big deal about it as a debut single for a different band about five years later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, <laughs> I think um, what's what's really good about hearing that song like all these years later is that um, like, I think it on that listen, we, it tells me why we used to open a set with that song, because it sort of just grabs you and pulls you in, doesn't it? And sort of then, I don't know, punches you in the face several times it's, it's, it's so much energy in that song and um kind of really grabs hold of you so for the listeners what happened is the the brian mills demo as we referred to it got us quite a lot of attention and um we were practicing quite religiously at rue studios and that song and a handful of others that would be on the brian mills and then what was the next one after that the Give yourself away demo. Yeah, that was done on an eight track. Yeah, just yeah. Ourselves. Those those created a buzz around our band, the Cling, that probably we never managed to capture anything similar to in the rest of the life of the Cling, or even in, in seeing Scarlet or other bands. Um, and it it was largely around Ugly Girl was probably the song that that all the record companies were saying like that's your hit, that's your hit. Um, so much so that I forget who was it. Uh, we got the attention of Simon White, who was a manager, <clears throat> and he had a connection to Rondor Studios. Uh, I don't know. Rondor was a publishing label, wasn't it? Um, That's and, yeah. With Island. Was yeah, it did. Was Rondor the name of the studio? Or the publishing I think it company? was a, the studio owned by the record label Rondor, which I think was a publishing label. But I, I think there was there was a sense that we really wanted to capitalize on this energy and you know it was still the songs that were getting us attention were still a bedroom demo recorded in, in Brian's house and wherever it was in North London and and I think we we sensed the song's going down well but we don't we don't have the definitive studio version of it yet um and no. so you know we got some studio time and went in to Rondor <laughs> Are you going to go straight into it, or do you want to talk a bit more about the song? Because we haven't heard well, anything why don't we about do, you. Why don't we do the song first? You're right. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't mind. I'm just wondering if you want. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think. Um, well, I was kind of teeing up the next version of it. So maybe we, we should. Go... Yeah, because we can hear the contrast in <laughs> in versions better. I guess if they're closer together. Let's let's do this this version and then we'll talk about the song and what's it about and all our favourite bits. Um, oh, are we going to hear it to the to the end? I I think yeah, it'll it's only take a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Die, but I don't wanna die for you. 
So I think we probably don't listen, need to listen to the second verse and chorus because we've got the idea here. But I do want to come back in for the middle eight because mm. uh, the the arpeggi that Penn has had to play on the on the sax. <laughs> I, just, I remember him uh, struggling so much to record. Oh, this is. I'll never forget it. Like it was, t- it was awful for him. He, like, it was, it was so fast compared to what he played. He's trying to play this. Uh, why did we not realise at that point? That we, I think, I think we did realise at that point actually, and we were like, it's too late. We've recorded all the other instruments. We couldn't go back and do a slower version. We just... <laughs> uh, it's a shame because sonically, there's some stuff to recommend this version. It's hmm. just too fast. Sagging onto the floor, like wheezing, like Mutley, and we were sort of going, "What's wrong with you, man?" <laughs> Shortly after that, I invested in this piece of equipment. <laughs> it's been useful at the time. It's amazing that now. Uh, I mean, it does also rock out. I mean, make amazing drumming because the, the propulsive energy. The, the truth is, we were all high on it. We were fucking loving it and yeah. playing it, playing it at that place live, like which yeah. we, I'm sure we did all the time. <laughs> yeah. Was incredibly mm. thrilling, and I think it was great for the audiences a lot of the time. So we sh- we didn't notice until near the end of recording because we were just high on it. Like it, it, it mm. does also rock. <laughs> it's like it's like sitting on it. You did it. You did. Yeah. You did. Yeah. I was struggling I mean, to play on guitar to be honest at that pace. As a band, it's like. It. We was just sat on this like speeding train of rock and just somehow managed to hold on. And like the, the reason I asked, um, yeah, yeah exactly. the reason I asked whether you played to the end was because I think like those outros, like we knew how to finish a song, and those outros just so rocking, so banging. But like, as well as being like frantic and chaotic and and um, kind of loud, like we're all kind of together on it as well. Like that's that's what's amazing about it. Like and Penners did pull it off, and um, yeah, it's amazing, like massive sound and. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, the way we kind of um, channeled our excitement at the time was just to play it as fast as we could. <laughs> but it certainly didn't take the Brian Mills one and make it radio friendly. It made it a 
too frenetic, I think, to give us the chance of that major label crossover. Mm. I know, and it's it's so because we were at that time we were with working with engineers. You know, we had no producers to speak of, no one to say, for example, use a metronome, or like no one to say to me like you might want to have the delay pedal like in time with the tempo of the song. Like no one ever told me that, you know, in either of those versions. But so well, you it was very hard to say what the tempo of the song was going to be. Yeah, that's also true. <laughs> I think really bloody quick. Well, I'm going to say for all that, like, it's a dynamic song as well. Like, you know, I know it's sort of, I never repeat things a couple of times, but there's, um, there's, there's a dynamism to it as well, where we're kind of, we're really working with the sort of the shape of the song. And sometimes we're just pounding away at it and like, you know, on that train, but then also like, we know, we know when to sort of step back as well, like the middle eight and the sort of the space for the bass and the guitars in there. And um, this lovely kind of syncopated rhythm that you guys are doing. It's great. We um... give it that space. In the in the Brian Mills version, that was the only time I realised he was recording with sort of decent microphones. That breakdown, mm. yeah, it's like, it's, oh, the sludge fest has stopped for just a. That, short I have while. to say, I think that the swamp sound of the Brian Mills demo is part of its charm. Like, there's a reason. Oh, like, it's a bit like, I mean, maybe this sounds a little grandiose, but when you hear people talking about Exile on Main, on Main Street by the Stones, which is like considered this classic album, but it has this like swampy noise, and you can't really hear the vocals, but. It's a bit like that. It's like, in retrospect, it's aged the best of all the versions. But that yeah. fast Rondor one, even though it's like chaotic and too fast, it's important to recognise how when we hear this next version, it's too far the other way, right? I mean, there was something... If you regiment a song like that too much, and maybe I shouldn't say oh. this now, but we're getting a real... We will hear a real contrast in approach to the song in the next version, which is also not without problems. So fast forward a few years, Mick's not in our next incarnation. Sorry, Mick, but you did come and see us and you know who, who Seeing Scarlet were. We we have a different drummer on this and no sax. And this was Seeing Scarlet's attempt to try and win a hit with this song. Um, and again, I don't think we quite get, get it right. And I, I struggle to listen to this partly because of what we do right at the beginning. terrified to do what we did at Rondor and so keeping it as you say almost too slow 
It's too slow, but it's not just too slow. I mean, to be honest, I, I really don't like it. Right, I mean, it's, it's not just too slow, but it's like it's chopped up. It's it's what what's the name of it's just Pro Tools to the max. It's like it's auto tuned. It's I'm just, it it's it sounds lifeless to me, and it's very hard when you hear it after the really fast version. But it where's that energy gone in the Brian Mills demo? Where's the excitement gone? It's yeah. not there. Maybe I maybe I'm not qualified to say this, but when I listened to it yesterday on uh, I guess on a you know, a different, the better version, if you like, not over the internet. But um, I thought it was, I thought it was great, and I thought that I was listening to it, you know, one after the other, and kind of comparing the, the different versions. And I thought that there's a lot of power in this one as well. I mean, you can hear the vocal, which is really nice, because um, I think in seeing Scarlet, you, you guys made use of better um, recording um, facilities or better producers, yeah. and it gave the vocal space and like. There's a power to this that I think comes from confidence rather than just sheer excitement. Like, guys, you know, you, you, you sort of know what you're doing as well. Like, it, sound, it sounded to me like you confidently made a decision to, like, slow it down. I and... think I've become a better singer by this point. Yeah, definitely. the vocals um, are great. So I think, I, I think you're right. There are, there are elements to take from each version. Um, but th as a song, it doesn't hang together as nicely as, a, Is as it... the second one. I'm just wondering where we are and if it's worth hearing the outro again, like at the end, to see what the energy of that is like. Um, crazy rain stick sound on one of them that I didn't, really didn't like. I don't know if that... Yeah, there was like, no, there was like a... Wow. Yeah, there was a, wow. there was a phase at the end. But I, I, was I, I it was not nice. Was that a single? Is that the single version that was released, Charlie? With Never uh, Good I I, I, No, it doesn't seem like it is. But it's from it, the I, same... Same Over session. the internet, it sounded it sounded very, it sounded different to me than I expected. But it's really hard to judge. But anyway, I think like I mean, Mike, you're right. We, re we recorded that in townhouse studios for God's sake. Everything else had been done in a bedroom, or we had like an extremely massive. We were in like a massive proper recording studio, and it, it's all very proficient. And you know, we'd all we had all tightened up. You know, I certainly was playing it, but it was still it was like chopped into bits. It wasn't live. Yeah, but. We were, we were also playing it more tightly and more, but I don't know. I also remember you guys playing that live as seeing Scarlet and just thinking like, you know, we've got not just a different version of a song, but we've got like a different band or a different version of a band playing the same song, kind of however you want to describe it. And, you know, I think you, you take the sax out and it's kind of amazing how what we did with the sax in, in, in Ugly Girl, apart from the fact that Pens could play it, but, you know, there's a sort of percussive element to the sax that mm, I guess mm. isn't available in this. It was and one where the sax really worked. Amazing. But, you know, you lose that in this and obviously yeah. you've got you've got um, Charlie Layton on the drums doing his thing, but then it almost feels like you, you step in and fill the space in a way with vocals and it almost feels like it's a band that has... Um, 
you know, a kind of vocal section in it, which, you know, obviously we, we had vocals in playing songs and backing vocals, but you really like hear that in this. And I love that. Like you're really making use of the fact that you've got vocalists in things, Scarlet, and it's awesome. Oh, yeah, I think you're being kind. Like <laughs> <laughs> but it also, like, I'm also remembering the live, you know, when you played that live and you, you guys live are seeing Scarlet, you know, it was that you had, you did the vocals properly, like really, really well. And uh, I think you knew you were doing it well. Yeah, to, to be honest, I think live it was really good for seeing Scarlet as it was with the Kling. I, to me, it's just about the element of live performance in the recording had diminished to almost nothing. And we know that like modern studio recording is you don't record most stuff live. But in some of our recordings, there was a sense in which there was a live bass that you were working from, like the Rondo one. Whereas there, I don't, I don't think we ever, you know, Charlie played his drums and we all did our bits and we went. And, I, I, you know. I get a sense that um, studio recording now has gone back the other way to more live rooms and more people doing stuff. Uh, because I think you know, the digital music. technology was still quite new at that time and people going like, oh yeah, we don't need to do that anymore. We can just cut it up and just like beat match it and make it perfect. And they were still in that phase. Whereas I think it, it, after a few years, they realized it didn't sound as good. And so you still needed to keep the, dynam the yeah. dynamics right and then just use the technology to make fixes. Um, yeah. So it's a shame. I, I heard a tale that... Um, you know, uh, is it? Uh, it's no, no one knows uh, by Queens of the Stone Age, and it's mm. got some monumental drumming from Dave Grohl. Uh, that's almost impossible, I think. Uh, and I heard a story that uh, he just went into the studio, laid down the drums, and said, "Cut them up, do what you like, beat match them. I don't care. That's me done." <laughs> oh, that features on Drum Heroes, uh, yeah. and oh, <laughs> it's one of the apologies. best drum tracks. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, if if that's the case, then maybe he doesn't need the adulation we gave him <laughs> maybe the pro tools man does so let's cleanse our palettes because we've had four versions of this a very similar song um did we need to say anything more about ugly girl before we move on because i mean it was an important song for us um we probably need to tie a bow on it i think charlie just one thing is we've not, you've not said anything about your role in this right we haven't got from the fever to ugly girl we didn't talk about that um really apart from Jim and I jamming it musically. So you you came in and wrote a new line, not said anything about the lyrics. It's also probably worth mentioning it's not as misogynistic as it sounds, <laughs> you know, so t in terms of the meaning behind it, you know. Yeah, it's one that got uh, misinterpreted because it probably shouldn't be called Ugly Girl. It was just throw it's one of those throwaway lines like Blue on Blue where it becomes the title of the song, but it's actually a throwaway line in the in the context of uh, where it appeared in my notepad book. I, th I think like you would, you would say the fever was an incomplete lyric. Um, uh, and as such, uh, or it didn't have a, a hooky chorus. So it did feel like it needed some rewriting, but I really liked the way some of the lines you'd originally written were scanned. So like, when I saw you in my dream last night, we kept that one in, but I'd just gone through a breakup and uh, it, it's a breakup song um, and the ugly girl that's referenced is not the person that I've broken up with. It's actually um, a moment in time where I'm sitting really depressed on the tube looking at these two people uh, like out and about uh, laughing and uh, just having a really nice time and me just feeling like fuck off you don't what what right do you have to be happy when i'm unhappy you ugly fucking girl you know it's uh, it, it was that it's 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 it was written in that and then the person wasn't ugly and it, it, it wasn't uh, about someone being ugly to look at it was just like uh, just 
that feeling of bitterness and anger and resentment and pissed offness uh, that you've lost something and other people still get to go about their lives being happy. Um, uh, that's that's the, the the sense of the lyric, but it it wasn't always interpreted that by by other people in that way. But it suits the music so well that that kind of theme. Like, so it's a breakup song, but it's not like a morose breakup song, or a, it's a, it's spiky and angry, and like it's lashing out in in ways that are irrational. And and I think that the I don't know the, it, it worked very well with the music. I mean, we haven't really analysed it on this level, but you know, yeah. And then there's there's other bits that are like I think that you know the, one of my favourite bits that is. Jim, you sing the the bridge, and it's one yeah. of the key hooks of the song. And I don't, I don't think I think that comes from jamming, rather than my. Uh, so I think I'm responsible for like the verses and the chorus bits of the lyrics. And I think you add that bridge, and also what what was brilliant about it is because you've got a very very pure tone, and when you double tracked it, as we did with both the Brian ones and subsequent ones, it gives a really nice clean uh, gap between verse and chorus. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's, it does sound sonically quite different, doesn't it? Because the uh, guitars get a bit more sparse as well. You clean up the guitars as well, don't you, Tom? It just turns into the police or something. Yeah, but it's that, which had been like a post-chorus or outro on the fever. I was playing it over the verse, but then we just stripped it back. I think you said keep that and then just sang something over it because it hadn't been a bit with singing over it. And uh, I, I like that. I like that part. I know that, and I remember thinking, this whole thing is about sounding like the police, and then no other part of it ended up remaining sounding like yeah. the police apart from that bit. But the whole idea to have the syncopated uh, bass sort of counterpointing the guitars and the drums did that really well as well, Mickey. Um, was to get that sort of sort of not reggae-ish, but slightly new wavy kind yeah. of sound and that was unfortunately we took it a step too far in that fourth and final version with the ah which which is clearly a nod to the police and we were recording that in hugh padgham's uh mm. studio within townhouse and i think we were all getting a bit too high on trying to be the police yeah maybe <laughs> um but the lyric in the in the bridge is purely i think it was just trying to uh it's, not, it's a fairly clumsy oppositional thing but the idea was uh with the please believe my lies line was to sort of cue up the why you're not the man to rely on, I think. But final word on that is to just give the little drum intro a bit of an extra shout, actually, because that's a classic example. We talked about this in some other podcasts of where you get those intros that are just like instantly recognisable yeah. and central to the song and really important to why it's good, even if they only last two seconds. It's like that with that drum part. Like you came up with that drum part and it's essential to the song. I mean, Charlie didn't even try and change that. There was no question that that had to be. Yeah, it's funny. Know. It's funny because I didn't. It's funny how you, when you listen to it, you hear in a way, more um you hear more of what other people are doing than than the maybe the part you played or sang um but i guess what you're saying now reminds me of how much we all contributed um as, as the claim you know even when you had a sort of a song like the fever that was kind of i mean you know maybe it wasn't a version that you wanted to bring into a band in its in that form but it was a complete song we could have just played that song but we didn't we kind of reworked it as a band and i think like we did that mm -hmm. a lot and i think when we come talk about music will save you it's sort of um, there's something there about the eclectic, you know, the eclectic nature of the cling and how we all had something to offer. And I guess that's what you're talking about now that we kind of we pick up our own parts and sort of um, introduce them and sort of work those into a final version of the song. Mm. And uh, you were always very good at that, uh, very musicianly in that way. I, I always felt like your your drum parts were really 
properly thought through and innovative and they, there was always a reason why we're doing what we're doing things like the eight and stuff mm. where you and i would just sit down and mm. try and do something rhythmically interesting mm. never wanted to just do yeah. a beat like the one on that other song so listeners i hope you've enjoyed listening to genealogy genealogy of the song part one um this was initially going to be uh, one podcast but uh we've run to the hour so um we're going to bid you farewell and hope you tune in for the second part next time say good night to the good listeners cliffhanger night night good night good night, good night. bye <laughs>